Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper podcast. We have a super exciting guest with us today. Today, we're joined by Elizabeth Acevedo, who was the author of our June book club pick, Clap When You Land. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We're so excited to have you. I'm going to give everyone a quick overview on who you are before we get into all the questions, just so everyone has the context. So. Elizabeth is the New York Times bestselling author of The Poet X and With the Fire on High, in addition to Clap When You Land. The Poet X won the 2018 National Book Award for Young People's Literature, and she has won countless awards for her writing and is one of both of our favorite authors. And Elizabeth has a BA in Performing Arts from the George Washington University and an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Maryland. She is a National Poetry Slam champion. And she resides in Washington, D.C. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. We are so excited to talk more about your background and also the making of this book because it is one of the most unique books that I've ever read. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. It was a long process. And so I'm interested to hear what kinds of questions you have or what stood out. It's one of those books I think you put out and you're like, I have no idea what people are going to think about this because it's uh, it just came from such a, a random place in some ways. We can't wait to hear more. But um, Becca's introduced you. Um, and we're, again, we're, I haven't said it. I am so happy to record <laughs> with you. I wish we could be here together in person. We used to, before COVID, we would do all of our interviews in person. I mean, you're in DC and we're here in New York. But um the next book. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Do you want to walk us through, in your own words, um, how you got to where you are today? Yeah, we'd love to hear more about your career. Yeah. yeah. I was born and raised in New York, which is helpful to know because it meant that I was at a lot of different intersections. Both my parents are from the Dominican Republic, and um, I was raised in a neighborhood called Morningside Heights, which is right by Columbia University. And so in some ways, I was near a lot of prestige and affluence and like the hub of education in in that part of, of New York. And at the same time, you know, one avenue away, there was a lot of poverty and it was a neighborhood you know, where we had a lot of gangs and and, um, just disenfranchisement, which I think growing up in the middle of that, you're like, this is very strange that I am literally in a five black radius and, and there are so many worlds contained within this. And as a kid, I knew that. And so my writing initially came from observing what was happening in the neighborhood and just trying to make sense of it. Like my earliest poems, which were really rap songs, were just like, what what is happening? And what how do I kind of use language to try to make sense of that? Fast forward, I go to high school. I have this amazing teacher, English teacher, who is um, trying to recruit me into the poetry club, which if we read the poet x this might sound familiar um but i was very much like i'm gonna be a rapper jay-z is gonna discover me i'm going to be like diddy's protege like i am not wasting time with poems like i thought there was this weird distinction between hip-hop and poetry and it was in high school that i think i became a little bit more expansive in my definition of what is poetry what is a poem i went to college and made up my own major i studied performing arts which was literally just me being like can i figure out how to do poems professionally on stage like that was my whole goal of, of 
of my my college years, which was like a terrible degree to try to attempt to get in 2010 when there were not a lot of jobs to be had and there had like a recession. So I didn't know what to do next. And I became an English teacher. I had always loved literature. I love books. This is the long story. Feel free to cut this however you want to splice it. But I want the long story. Yeah, give us the story. <laughs> I became a middle school teacher. I did Teach for America which placed me in the, I, I stayed in the Washington DC area and I taught at this school called Buck Lodge Middle School, which um, was 80% Latinx and they never had a Latinx teacher teaching a core subject. It was almost 20% black. They had never had an Afro-Latinx teacher at all in that school. And so I'm in this space where most of my students are not on reading level. I come from this background of loving literature, loving poetry, seeing the connection between like oral performance and storytelling and what that does for communities. And I'm, you know, encountering young people who who are telling me on a daily basis, I have no interest in this. Like this doesn't feel like it is for me. And and so the initial kind of impetus of I wonder if I could take the energy that my young people respond to and bring that to a, a form that they feel like isn't for them and just try to complicate what that could look like. So the Poet X was that kind of answer of, can I write a story that I would have loved as a young person that I think my kids would love right now, but that also still is engaging rigorously with the canon? Can I, is that a possibility? And so that was kind of my mandate for myself. Can I write in a voice that feels super honest? But it's also like really challenging notions of what, you know, American letters can do. I don't know. It took a long time. That was in 2012. So clearly it took me six years to try to figure out what that could be. And so the Poetex was over several years kind of constructed. What was your road like to getting that published? I mean, I didn't know how to write a novel. I had written a lot of individual poems. I had written a lot of poems that I performed, but I, I hadn't completed a project. So when I began the Poetex, I got to like 40 pages and was like, well, that's a book. Like I finished <laughs> the story. And so I had to I had to depart and teach myself what writing fiction meant. So I did NaNoWriMo, which is where With the Fire on High initially came out. That's the novel that was published second, but finished first. Oh, okay. I wrote a fantasy that. novel. Yeah, I did that in 2013. That was the first project. Um, I specifically wanted to do prose, wanted to kind of, well, if I can teach myself to write an, a narrative in prose, then maybe I can figure out the verse part. Because part of it was I couldn't hold the story in my head. But if I can write it linearly in another form, maybe I can figure out how to shape this later on. I wrote a fantasy novel, which was horrible. 400 pages of this little witch in New York who has to travel to DR and train with her grandmother. That sounds um, like a, a book we would love, though. It was a great project for me. I learned a lot. Um, and I think I just needed to finish a couple of things. Yeah. Like things that didn't didn't make it anywhere. And in 2016, I returned back to the Poet X. So at that point, I had two books under my belt. I had a bunch of different ideas on things I wanted to work on. And I had these 40 pages. And I decided I'm going to I'm gonna try to finish it. And so I, I mean, I went pretty every single day for like two and a half months to complete that draft and sent it out to some beta readers, sent it out to some friends, got feedback sent it to this agent I had been friendly with online that I met on Twitter. Within a month, she had taken me on as a client. With A month after that, the book went to auction. Oh, wow. Like six days later, you know, 
it went to Harper. And so it, it, I, I want to give the full story because I think sometimes people believe you just come out of nowhere and it's like six years of quiet in the dark work that no one ever saw. And then a trajectory that was very quick um, thereafter. And so it's hard to answer like the, the, yeah. the process of writing this thing because it's like, well, what version? <laughs> yeah. Prefer? Yeah. And what was the birth story of Clap When You Land? So Clap When You Land is... I mean, it, it's based on true events. I was 12 years old, um, maybe I had just turned 13, I think, when you know, flight AA587 fell in New York City and it was two months and a day after the World Trade Center attacks. And so being an, you know, an eighth grader in New York and kind of reeling from this national tragedy and then this, this very communal tragedy where this plane full of Dominicans, there were 260 passengers on that flight, 90% of whom were of Dominican descent, um, you know, crashes three minutes after being in the air. And the way that it completely just kind of rocked my community, it just felt like everyone knew someone, there were vigils outside of people's households, there was a lot of questions, like, what does this mean? Is it terrorism? What's the story here? And it also felt like once it was determined that, that it was, you know, pilot failure, it was a mechanical error. The pilot didn't know how to um, navigate one of the controls. It, it fell to the wayside. Well, this is not a story anymore because nothing, you know, it was just an error. Someone messed up. And I just remember kind of that feeling of the juxtaposition of 9-11, which I would never take away from what that tragedy was, but the way we had guidance counselors in the schools, the way that people were super sensitive, the way that teachers were bringing it up in every single class and trying to create this space for us to speak. And then a school with so many Dominican children has a flight where the entire Dominican community in New York is affected by it to some extent. And there's not one grief counselor. There's not one person asking if we're okay. There's no one checking on the neighborhood or the community members or what does it mean to lose that many people that quickly. So the story kind of came from the questions of like, what does it mean to be important only to yourselves? What, is that, what does that look like? And so I, I've always just been circling this. I've done a lot of research and the, the the what clap when you land became came from reading up on some of the people who had been on that flight and some of the secrets that came out later so then this question of like what is the dignity of death was something that i was circling anyhow i circle a lot of things it took like 10 years to figure this out and i've loved the phrase clap when you land dominicans do it when we land in new in dr it's it's popular in the caribbean it's popular in latin america the joy the exhalation of like we made it we're here and also like we're in this metal thing that's in the air that at any point could probably fall and i think a lot of us carry that there's a lot of fearfulness still in the traveling back and forth between the dominican republic and the united states and so the title kind of arrived long before the story but i knew i wanted to capture that relief that miracle but also the fear yeah that exists with flying we were both saying that um it changed our perspective on the the phrase clap when you land because like in the past you'd be like why is everyone clapping and this like <laughs> it was so joyful that they made it after you know it was it was camino's yeah. first time on an airplane and you know they lost their father on a on a plane yeah. so i don't know yeah. what Something that Becca and I both loved with this book was that after a couple chapters, it we didn't even need to look and see like which sister was speaking. Yeah. And I think we're really curious about how you went about developing their voices. Um, was one of them based on you? Oh, I appreciate this question, Grace. I um, 
people have a lot of feelings about the dual narrative and and whether they think it works or not. I would try to be really thoughtful around how can I give enough cues to the reader that I'm not going to constantly be interrupting you. I like, didn't want it to be super loud at the top of the page. Like this is, I mean, you know, like that yeah. just felt clumsy in what I hoped was an overlap and an entangling of stories. I didn't want it to be too easy. These are still girls that were raised by a parent who would have offered them something that they might match onto, right? So they have similarities. But Camino speaks in longer sentences. She's in tersets. She's um, someone who has a lot more idioms than Yahaira. So when I was thinking of her, I'm thinking of my cousins and my family members in DR and the quick phrases they use and the observations they make based off of where they live and what they know. So you'll see that Camino has a lot of references to the ocean, to water, to um, to sand, to islands, to what it what this disconnect of being being surrounded by water, right? Like that is her kind of basis of, of language experience. Yahaira has a lot more concrete, a lot more shorter sentences, right? More New York staccato, very clipped. And so I, I wanted to be really thoughtful about the distinction between how their voices come through, being in the sentence, being in the grammar, being in the shortness of lines, being in the line breaks that each sister would make. But I, I did write the book entirely in Yahaira's perspective long before I realized Camino would be in the story. Oh, oh And wow. so it is important to note that part of the construction of this novel was completing it in one voice and then going back in and feeling some things and giving them to Camino or, or really chiseling that voice to be sharper once I realized there was going to be a contrast. So there's a lot of voice work that I had to do to feel like this was ready. And let's talk about writing in prose versus writing in verse. This book is... I think less fewer words on a word count basis, but was oh, it more yeah. effort to write this or how did it come out of you? Yeah, every book is hard. I, I'm yeah. waiting for the day when I'm like, I've arrived, I've got this, like there's a machine in my head. Like, no, it's the project, every project, and maybe it's because I'm choosing to do that, right? But the Poet X was kind of, can I hold 368 pages of poetry in my head? And the answer was no, right? I had to get to draft like four or five before I could hold the plot because I couldn't always remember like, how did this extended metaphor work in the beginning? So I would be going back to see how I could pull it through later. Or I just, I would forget, I would be writing and realize, oh, the best friend hasn't appeared in 15 pages because it's not the traditional mm -hmm. storytelling. So much of it is in her head. Um, and I thought prose would be so much easier, right? So I'm like, okay, I'm scared of sentences, but I'm going to figure this out. So I started with the fire on high and you see that it's kind of short prose. They're almost prose poems. They're like these little two page chapters because a part of my training as a poet is brevity. Mm -hmm. And so it was hard to break myself out of that habit of um, sticking to interiority. Yeah. And like, no way you need a plot, Liz. <laughs> you, can't just, <laughs> you can't just have these girls feeling for 15 pages. Like, <laughs> you need to happen. Which in verse, you can kind of get away with just like, you know, contemplation. And, and I think I did it in Clap When You Land. She has this long section about her girlfriend. This is your hire. And then she comes back and it's like, I'm saying all of this so I don't have to say my father is dead. Right. I can allow myself the room to really look away and then come back. I don't know if in prose it it feels clumsier to do that in prose. So I had to teach myself like um, more seamless ways to kind of create those hinges. Yeah. But that was difficult. And then I, you know, came back to verse and was like, poetry is my thing. I got this and decided to do a dual narrative. And how do you create two distinct voices 
when I have a very clear poetic voice, yeah. right? Which I think gets back to your question, Grace, of were either of them me? I would say no, neither one. There were questions that both sisters have that I've certainly had as a first generation Dominican. There are a lot of questions I've had in terms of like, what does it mean to belong when I feel like I am nowhere? And how is the in-between a space that, that a lot of us occupy it is its own own place? Like yeah. this, this is where I belong in this in-between and that's okay. Right. And so, you know, Yahira kind of working through some of those questions were, were my channeling my younger self, but getting the voice was tough. Oh, I can't imagine. You did it so well, though. My editor helps. This is something to say. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's helpful to have someone who knows your voice and can kind of be like, this is you. Like, this is not this kid. And so I can, I reshaped. Yeah. yeah. Now, switching gears a little bit, we're in the middle of a p- pandemic. First of all, how yeah. are you doing during all of this? I'm holding up. You know, it, it feels it feels like something new is being thrown at us. You know, every every day I kind of wake up and I'm like, let's see what today's gonna be. And so it's been hard, right? Emotionally, it just it's been exhausting to have to um, keep reinventing the self I need to be in order to like be okay. Yeah. In this moment, like I think I have a handle on it, and then it's like, oh no, the self I have to be has to be outraged. Yeah. The self I, I need to be today has to be, you know, reading every newspaper. The self I need to be has to be, you know, fundraising for for protesters. Like it is a it's such a, a strange thing to to have to keep stepping up for what you and your family need. And so I'm I'm all right. And how has it been promoting a book like in the middle of all of this? Like and having to be self promotional and, you know, get get your baby out into the world. I also feel like with with books, so much of it is in person. It's like events at bookstores and conferences and like more than maybe other industries, like promoting a book is very in person. Yeah. I mean, I laugh because I I don't, I don't roll well with the punches. I was talking to my therapist (laughs) last week and I said that phrase and she started laughing because she's like, no, you do not. Right. Like that's not therapy. Right. Like I have very, I, I like, I don't know. I, I'm a, I manacle on to ideas. And like, this is how I'm imagining. I think a part of me has convinced myself that it, when I envision things, I like will go gun co and that's how I'll, I'll make sure it, it happens. But you know, then a pandemic occurs. And so I had a, a two week tour in the US, a two week tour in the UK. Um, I had, you know, a lot of promotion that would have required in person type things. And in March, the UK called off their tour first, they were like, we're not doing it. And Harper came a week later and it was crushing a little bit i mean partly because i think i i had convinced myself that if i wasn't out there i couldn't succeed right like that's so much of of a book doing well is because i've always toured i've always been at the forefront i've i've pushed really hard i feel like you know i kind of grabbed the baton from my publishers and i'm like all right i'll get out in front of thousands of people and do everything i can and so for someone who hates skype and hated any type of virtual visit prior to this i i could not fathom how i was going to be able to engage in in and especially at the time we had no idea what we were even talking about yeah, are people yeah. going to buy books are people even interested in literature this month? What are schools doing? How like we didn't know this is six weeks out, right? I had I was a part of a Phoenix First Must Burn, which is an anthology that came out by Patrice Caldwell, which is all about um, black women writing fantasy and sci-fi, but writing joy, right? So it's all these black stories of of that end up with joyfulness or triumph. And that book came out the week that DC declared stay at home order. So my last <laughs> event was promoting that book with Patrice Caldwell at a bookstore. And we're like, we're not touching anybody. We're not hugging. We're not shaking hands. Like we 
we pre-signed everything so we wouldn't have to even like you know but it already felt weird and a week later I'm like wait can I just do that like (laughs) like, even that is better than nothing but that book was pushed to the wayside because there was so much happening so the initial fear of you know here's the thing I've been working on since 2013 and it's gonna flop it's gonna flop because there's no way that we can all hold what feels like I mean what is a global crisis and also you know still consume art like this is this isn't the point right now it's not the point for me right now I'm trying to figure out how to get my mom groceries you know in New York I'm not I'm not worried about doing an interview and so it took a lot to kind of wrap my mind around okay how can I be creative in this moment? How can I show up in this moment? And how can I consider this book and what I do with this book as an offering? Like people are, are tired. People don't want to focus on the pandemic all day. Like, can I use the book as a way to bring joy or to at least change the, the direction of the narrative and a book about grief in a moment where a lot of people are grieving? Maybe it'll hit, but maybe it won't. And so there were a lot of questions, but ultimately I think it was my online community that got me excited again. It was the folks on Instagram and Twitter and the people send me emails who are like I pre-ordered I can't wait or this is the thing I'm looking forward to like I you know I haven't done anything in six weeks I'm not spending money but like this book and I think for me it kind of reinvigorated me in what a book can do this kind of conversation that then happens. I've been invited to more book clubs with this novel than any other book. And I think it's partly because a lot of people are participating in book clubs. <laughs> a lot of people are home and they're reading. And so I am i wouldn't change a thing. And we talked about potentially pushing the book to the fall. And given what we all know about the state of the world right now, I'm like, I'm so glad we, we just... We stuck with the plan and trusted that readers would show up. I feel like this was such a good escape. I I personally had a really hard time reading specifically in March and at the very beginning, but now I've really found books to be such an escape and especially books that have a travel element like this one does or, you know, um, give me perspective into somebody else's life that is not my own and does not have to do with the pandemic or politics or anything like that. So I, I found this to be like such an amazing reprieve and especially the beauty of the of the writing was like so transportive it really was oh, I'm so glad to hear that and I, maybe I need to take that suggestion in, in the, initially I was able to read a lot of romance novels which isn't unusual for me I read I was a lot doing of romance novels anyway oh, okay. <laughs> but but I love like the hopefulness and totally, like okay yeah. here's the comfort like yeah. I know what I'm going to get and and that I needed that and then it became difficult I got really mad at romance novels like, you don't understand. You're not wearing a mask. Like, you don't get it. You, like, I'm talking like Victorian, like Regency. Like, you don't understand what's going on. I can't see my mom. Like, um, so I realized I needed something maybe contemporary, but maybe travel. Maybe something contemporary, but that's that's away a little bit might be what I need to do back there. So thanks yeah. for that suggestion. You have to read The Idea of You. So it's about – it's the, the best escape. Like anyone who – DMs us during the pandemic. We've been like, read this book. It will. This like, is the book. Yes, it'll give you such okay. an, a nice escape. It's about um, basically a forty-year-old author has an affair with a thinly veiled Harry Styles. But the writing of the book is actually beautiful and it's really smart and it's just oh. wonderful. It's I de- can't wait to check it out. Okay, it's definitely my favorite recent romance. Yeah, it's a good okay. escape. Yeah, I'm on it. But we also want to talk about with the fire on high. Um, okay. which I actually was late to the party. I didn't read it until last year, but I loved it. Um, and one of the questions that somebody submitted- It only came out last year. So Did it? Okay. Oh, I <laughs> yeah. thought I was a year late to it for some reason. I mean, 
a book a year. So I've only, I mean, two and a half years. Oh, good. I was on time for the party. Yeah. You were on, you, you were, were early. on time. <laughs> um, but I wanted to, somebody asked questions about the the food in the book because food is such a central um, part of that book. And did you have to do research for that? Or do you cook? Was this from your family and your heritage? Like how did the, how did that work with that novel? I do cook and I, I enjoy cooking. I didn't start cooking until later. My mom is an amazing cook and she was just not someone I was going to compete with when I was younger. So I would bake, but I wasn't competing with like what she made. <laughs> and then I went to college and, and I just really, en- I've enjoyed the kitchen since I was a kid, but I just love discovering. I love putting flavors together. I love figuring things out. And so a lot of Imani's kind of wanting to fuse thing or wanting to remix food. I think that's very much my coming from me. Um, and my mom is incredible and cooks very, I wouldn't say global cuisine, but more than like my other aunts cooks widely in terms of Latin American cuisine and worked specifically as a like nanny housekeeper in Puerto Rico, where she had to cook for the family that she worked for. So a lot of the dishes I grew up with were Puerto Rican dishes because of what she had learned to cook in Puerto Rico. But we're not Puerto Rican. And so there was there were some dishes in the book that my mom made. The tembleque recipe is my mom's tembleque recipe. And, you know, Dominicans also make mangu and mofongo and anything with platanos. So like any plantain dish in there, I probably can make. Um, and then there were things that I just, I you know, have had at Puerto Rican restaurants or my husband's family is from North Carolina. And so when she brings in her North Carolina roots, I will be channeling some of his aunts or like what I've had at Thanksgiving or dishes that his dad makes but I kind of fused what I know and what I love and borrow some things and did some research so it's a the recipes were mixed you made food feel so magic in that book like oh. there was some kind of alchemy about just her experience being in the kitchen and creating something that it just felt like there was so much love in in the experience of cooking yeah I wanted to make the recipes almost like little poems like in the Poetics, there are these um, essays that Siomara writes, and it's a different format, and it's like how you get in her head. With the fire on high, for me, the recipes were those little moments of this is a, a different format, but she's trying to show you the steps for something more than just cooking, right? She's trying to show you the steps for how she kind of processes, how she gets through whatever emotional reality she's living in. So whether that's losing your virginity and then having to eat sweet plantains because there's something about the caramelization and the bitterness there that matters, or whether she's, you know, her grandma, her aunt sends her a recipe and she's like, all right, I can... I can flip this that I feel for loss and like put that in. I mean, it's definitely a call on water for chocolate, right? With the fire on high is in that in that scheme and is in conversation with. But yeah, I'm glad you like the recipes. I did. Yeah. You don't think you're going to write a sequel to the fire on high, do you? We got a, a lot of readers at, of asked us that. <laughs> That's so amazing. Um, no, I don't I don't plan sequels for any of my books. I I think usually when I've ended it, it's because um, that world is, I'm okay closing the door on that world. But I am working on the screenplay. Oh, um, amazing. High was optioned last summer. And so I think there will be new elements I can bring in and certain things I can tease out. And so for me, it feels like I'm writing or stretching that story. Um, so we'll see. Oh, that's, that's so exciting. I can't wait. Yeah. Is it being adapted think- for TV or a movie? As of right now, I'm writing it as a film. Oh, okay. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's what the producers, that was what we're all in accord with. So hopefully a feature film. I can't wait. Yeah. Can we move into some reading recommendation questions? For sure. Um, I'm curious, what other 
YA titles would you recommend that feature Black or people of color characters? I love Justina Ireland's Dread Nation series. And so it's set um, after the Civil War with these Black girls who have been trained to kill zombies. And <laughs> the zombies are specifically like soldiers who were killed in battle who are rising back up. And I think it's such a smart take, and especially given the state of the world today, on like what happens when you have not actually buried the things that haunt you. And I'm so writing this down right now because... Oh, it's, I mean, <laughs> I, there are very few books I've ever wanted to plagiarize, but Dread Nation was one of them. I just thought it's, it's so smart and it's sharp. And I mean, it's The Walking Dead meets like... That sounds incredible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, 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 it's great. I think, I think Justine is really cool with how she approaches fantasy and specifically race and fantasy. I love Lamar Giles and he came out with a book called Not So Pure and Simple, which is kind of about toxic masculinity or like how do young men, especially young men of color, learn to perform boyhood and what is chastity. And so he takes a chat. So this young man is at church. He loves this girl. Um, and he takes a chastity pledge accidentally <laughs> in order to like get closer to this girl. Um, and then there are lots of hijinks, but some really important questions around like consent and conversations. I don't think we have with young men and, and not in, in certain communities. So those are two that I think are great. And anything by Meg Medina. Meg Medina. Okay. Meg Medina is a G. She won the Newberry last year um, for Mercy Suarez. She uh, wrote Jackie Delgado's Gonna Kick Your Ass. She wrote uh, Burn Baby Burn, which is historical fiction um, written during the 1970s. I mean, she's just, she to me has one of the best ears in YA in terms of capturing voice. Amazing. It's just so sharp. So those are my three. I haven't read any of those. I'm really yeah. excited to check those out. Ooh, okay, awesome. Now, what is your favorite underappreciated novel? I love this question. It came from a reader, a listener. I always love an under the radar because I feel like, yeah. you know, there are certain books that get the hype. And then, like, I love discovering one that somebody's like, this is my favorite book. Nobody's heard of it. This question, like, stumped me. I saw, I saw <laughs> it in advance. It was just like, I don't know. I mean, it would probably be and, – and this is a hard one because I think poets know this, but I want – more non-poets to read this collection. Um, when My Brother Was an Aztec by okay. Natalie Diaz, which is Natalie Diaz's first poetry collection. And it's about her brother who returns from war and um, has you know issues with, with being able to cognitively process that he's back. But the way that she goes into Aztec folklore and Native American folklore in order to talk about mental illness as someone who has a sibling that is mentally ill, I just I, I think she opens up so many doors for how the fantastical can be ground to try to make sense of things that don't make sense or, or not make sense of things and just accept that they are fantastical. Right. But I, I mean, this is the book I recommend across the board to anyone. And if you are not a poetry reader, urge you to still try because I think she's one of the smartest writers. Amazing. Uh, that wasn't on my radar. So I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. Um, and we talked a little bit about your quarantine reading, but do you have a recommendation? What's the best book that you've read during quarantine? The best? The best book is probably the book I'm reading right now, but it's so hard to get through right now. What I, is I it? decided, well, my husband and I have a two-person book club. <laughs> 
which is cute in theory, except he's a real big nonfiction person. I'm clearly more of a fiction person. So we try to find happy medium. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, short stories. This is great because we'll be able to read really quickly. We don't have to commit too much. Our attention spans aren't everywhere. And so I recommended Friday Black. Right, by Nana Kwame um, Arebrenya. This is a book entirely about short stories around like racial justice and like socioeconomic disparity. So this was great in March. It has been much harder to get through once we got to May. Yeah. <laughs> and so I've slowly been um, jumping back in, depending on where my energy's at. But he, his writing, I mean, he was named top 10 best writers under 30. He was Penn Faulkner, Penn America. Like he, I, he won a ton of awards for that book but but it's uh i think a masterful short story collection i think short stories are probably one of the hardest forms to do well i will say um bring down the duke was my favorite romance novel oh which, like, i haven't read that one that's on my shelf oh, i haven't read it yet it's so cute so i was a little over dukes i do a lot of dukes but like that one i was like i don't know but it's really sharp and it's it it's a different approach on like the suffragette movement it's a different um approach on like how parliament worked in trying to bring the women's vote in Britain. I just thought it was the historicity of it. I loved. I thought she was great. The Rakist by Scarlett Peckham was also very much a um, women's liberation romance novel set in the 1800s. And that's mostly what I read when I read romances historical, but bringing down the Duke and the Rakist, I just thought were doing some really interesting kind of radical things. Amazing. So I feel like we have to ask you this because you mostly write YA, or at least to date you have. What were some of your favorite books growing up? Oh man, I was so lucky. I was a, a voracious reader and taken to the library a lot and had some great teachers. Because of Win Dixie was a book that really meant a lot to me when I was a kid. I love um, Charlotte's Web. I'm trying to think. I, you know, House on Mango Street was maybe one of the first books that I saw a Latinx character depicted in that way. I had never been to Chicago. I'd never heard of a Chicana. Like, I didn't know these terms, but I remember reading that book and be like, oh, but I know this kid, you know, <laughs> and I know this community. And so I, I, I remember in eighth grade being like, wow, this kind of book can be read by the entire class. Like, that meant a lot to me that that was, you know, that text. I think Jacqueline Woodson is one of the best living writers we have, and I'm lucky enough to have been reading her since middle school. She has a book called Miracle Boys that... um uh, I just thought it was beautiful and how it depicted New York, but also lost. The characters lose their father and, and their Afro-Latinx character. So even that, that she was talking about Blackness within the Latin American community at that point in time, which was pretty rare. Those are probably a handful. You should see this page of notes that Grace has that she's like written <laughs> yeah. down all the books that she's going to buy after this. Yeah, I tend to do this a lot. Usually we would, we when, it, when it's just Becca and I or somebody at the table, I'll have my Amazon directly up. But right now I have our question list and Zoom, so I can't put Amazon <laughs> up too. <laughs> so it's pen and paper. I hear you. I hear you. And if you're in New York, I highly recommend Word Up Bookstore. They've been doing some amazing campaigning and um small independent co-op bookstore so it's community owned up in uh, washington heights oh, amazing. oh super cool Thank i've you. been shopping and they've been fast oh really okay. i've been shopping a ton at the lip bar um i love the lip bar I'm, i love the lip bar well I, it wasn't on my radar and i'm so excited to go there in person once things are open and safe again yeah, yeah. it sounds it's like so beautiful cool. and noel santos i think is um really great at thinking through like how do i engage the community in in this store like this like that store is is it 
it is a community like gem. Like people rally around that store in a way that um, I don't know. I, you see me like smiling. And I'm like giddy because whenever <laughs> I talk about the lip bar, I mean it was crowdsourced. It was funded by people who realized like the Bronx deserves a bookstore. And so just at the level of how many people stood behind it and are still rallying behind it, I'm so glad you've been supporting them. Yeah. Yes, Noel Santos at the lip bar. <laughs> Can we switch gears a little bit and talk about the publishing paid me hashtag slash the broader movement around it? Sure. So we were both just so shocked about the numbers being thrown around. Specifically, the one that really got me was Roxanne Gay's because- Oh my God, I know. I, I just, I think of Roxanne Gay as such a household name and such like- at the top of her game and to see some of the numbers that she got paid even after she was in my opinion well known was just like so shocking but we wanted yeah. to hear your thoughts like were you surprised were you like this has been a long time coming like what did you think about when you were reading it all of the above i mean i think there was a, a part of me that's like you know i you're if you're in the industry you have an idea of the discrepancies you kind of hear you know people the kind of numbers they'll get for a synopsis versus someone who's working on a trilogy and what they might be getting like there are whispers but I think to see it so baldly put forward was um was surely something and for me it was Jasmine Ward like to consider that one of the best American writers period won a national book award and still had to fight to get the number you know what I mean and, and yeah. I guess I I not that it's not a big number but but I just I just know <laughs> what industries pay for books I I cannot fathom her doing what she did winning two national book awards right pretty much back to back and like still fighting to to be recognized or be compensated for that kind of work I guess I just I don't know NK Jemison was one who I'm just like she like is a legend <laughs> like this is literally a legend and and I just, I, it, it was, it was really flabbergasted. And I haven't been spending too much on social media, too much time on social media because it's overwhelming. But I, I did scroll through a few of those and flabbergasted. Yeah. What do you think that needs to change in the publishing industry to get this pay gap closed? If, if you have any suggestions, we're, we're curious <laughs> on your thoughts. I, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. And one thing I, I'm curious about whether or not the conversation will get there is one around royalties, because a lot of the conversation I've been seeing are about advances and really big advances, right? Which I, I feel it depends on the person. But if you get a really big advance and can't earn that out, at least I have been told that the odds of being able to get another book with a push is lessened, right? Some of the numbers that we saw on that hashtag prove that that's not true. Some people got big advances, flopped and got bigger advances. But I think that one of the ways to potentially level the playing field is to bring royalties into the conversation more often. If a lot of publishers are saying, well, we just don't know if the book is you know, going to be able to do what we think it will, so we're only going to offer 15,000, well, then give me 20% on the royalties. You know, like even this up. And then if it doesn't do well, like fine, you didn't take the hit in terms of the advance but if it does do well like I get my cut at a larger base but I feel like we see it in the music industry we're seeing it in in sports where athletes or musicians are really stepping up and saying we are making the product we spend years making the product and we get 10 percent of the product yeah. And so I, I think the advances conversation is an important one to have because, yeah, if you're working on a book, you need to be able to have a salary to support you in doing so. But I would urge that I think one of the ways to even it up is just really talking about the percentages that people get. 
Um, so I guess another question, how can readers best support Black and people of color authors outside of just buying their books? Like, how do we impact the decisions that publishers are making as readers? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot to be said for pre-orders. Okay. Uh, publishers take pre-orders so seriously, and there's... Um, it's just such a big marker of like how they think a book is going to do and how they're going to push a book. So if you are excited about an author or there's someone that you like, or they're an auto buy for you. Um, and this is something I'm a failure at. I know I'm going to get, you know, whatever, uh, you know, Lisa Claypass writes next, but I don't pre-order. And so it's just an easy way. And it's often sometimes cheaper to just go ahead and order that in advance. If you are someone who's into Goodreads, right? Like a review is great, but even just putting something on your shelf that you know is coming out, like that is something that agents and editors pay attention to in terms of like how this might be projected. And so there are all these kind of little litmus tests that people look at to know how much effort to actually put behind a book that are just easy things that folks can do leave a review you know like that's just I I never leave reviews right but it's something I've tried to be better at even if it's just all right I'm gonna put five stars like I'm not gonna say anything but like I love this book I will let you know I love this book yeah and these are like small things that we're looking at but I will say that part of it is just being knowledgeable about the conversation and so sometimes folks really want to talk about is or how you know what is a sensitivity reader or have these opinions that aren't always informed in the trajectory of the conversation around diversity in literature. And so that might be a good place to start because it is easy to attack certain authors, especially Black authors and authors of color for the kinds of demands that they make if you are unsure of where those demands are coming from or the conversation prior to. And I know a lot of us get those conversations via Twitter or the roundup of articles that come out a few days later that often don't actually talk to Black, right, or or any other author of color. And so I think we just need to be thoughtful about the discourse. Yeah. Yeah. So and then just read more than like the 10 books that are on the New York Times list around nonfiction right now. Yeah. <laughs> more than just like anti-racist books, like read fantasy, read Afrofuturistic work, read poetry, read, um, you know, historical, like read, read widely beyond just like, I mean, read how to be a better white person as well. And like those books that are going to yeah. kind of help those thinking. But what reading does is it, it lets you into the world and interiority. And I think a lot of readers of color and, and Black readers and Indigenous readers have a lot of understanding of white women's interiority because that is what we have been reading forever. And the internal lives that we we have, I think it is easier to make monstrous a group of people who you feel like don't, don't have rich internal lives. I think it's why students are so harsh to teachers because they don't think of teachers as actual human beings outside of that room. You see them at a grocery store and you're like, oh, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that sometimes that that is what it can feel like to be a black person or a person of color in this country which is just like we are not given the benefit of imagination this is like the suspended disbelief that like we have these desires and hurts and like you know what I mean and it's, yeah. it's often because the consumption around our lives are as peripheral characters or or just tragic stories and so i would i would tell you know white readers like how how are you actively challenging whatever preconceptions you have about a any group of people by reading widely from that group of people yeah i love that elizabeth we have two questions to wind down this interview <laughs> i wish we could just talk to you all afternoon <laughs> 
like I've just been talking all day. I'm so sorry. I like no, we loved it. This has been that's the point of a podcast interview. We're here to hear from you. Yeah, we didn't bring you on to talk at you. We wanted to hear from you. I don't have no co-workers. So I just I spend a lot of the day like emailing or just regaling my husband with all the stories after he's done with his meetings, or when I get an interview in the week, I'm like, all of the words. That's really funny. It's me. (laughs) It's not you. We're excited. Yeah, we're we we. This has been a great interview. But Elizabeth, are you able to share anything about what is coming next? What your next book might? I know you're working on a screenplay, but Mm -hmm. what about books? (laughs) So the the secret, not so secret, because I talk about it on Twitter and Instagram pretty often. But I'm working on an adult novel. and that's really early in the works, but it's what I'm excited by right now. And I'm, I'm working on a poetry collection and that's been done for a while now. So it's more just feeling out whether or not it's complete and what that might look like. But there is a lot of writing that I'm hoping to do. One thing that's been good is that I'm not touring. So things are a little quieter. So I've been able to sit for the first time in a long in like three years, quietly with my thoughts and take my time. So adult adult novel, we'll see. It's kind of in those stages where you're like, this is brilliant or really idiotic. <laughs> so, I'm not entirely sure yet. I don't have the distance. Um, but I, I think the poetry collection I've been holding on to for a while and it might be time at some point soon to let it into the world. But those are the two things that will probably be arriving soonest. Um, there's a picture an illustrated poem that'll be coming out in 2021 and I have um I've signed up two more YA novels with Harper Collins so there will be more children's book as well I'm so excited about all of the things you have in yeah, the pipeline the yeah so the last question to end it on a listener submitted this and they wanted to know what are some of the small things that are bringing you joy in your everyday life right now I FaceTime my nieces every day they are four, Zarya's four, and Yara turns three on July 4th. And they have um, an iPod that they can kind of uh, get FaceTime calls on. And it's hilarious because they'll want me to watch TV with them. So they'll like <laughs> prop me up on the on the couch and they're like, we're watching Bubble Guppies. And so I'll sit there for an hour watching silently <laughs> Bubble Guppies with them. This morning, I got a picture of them talking with my mother-in-law and they had put my mother-in-law like on the floor and sat a teddy bear on top of her. And we're getting in trouble because <laughs> their mom is like, why? Why is grandma on the floor? And why <laughs> aren't you talking? So they're learning the watching them learn like the the rules of like communication and conversation, but they're just so cute. Like, oh Aunt Liz, are you working, Aunt Liz? Like, Uncle Shaq is working. So we called you my hours a little more flexible. So they're like, they're my joy. I mean, I just think there's something about just kids and they get it. You know, I'll be like, I miss you. Like, we can't see you because we have to wear masks because we can't get sick. And I'm like, that all of these things are right. Kind of, right? Like, yes, you can't see me right now. So they're they're such a joy. I've been watching a lot more talks. Like I like just random author talks. I, I stepped into Imani Perry's and Kiese Lehman's conversation that they had on Zoom a few weeks ago and it was brilliant. I'm watching this Dominican scholar, um, Torres Sejant, who's going to be giving a talk this Friday. I just feel like the access I have to some of my favorite writers has been um, incredible. And so I've been doing a lot of those talks and making bread, which I know oh, like is yeah. nothing. Is like, oh my God, all millennials during the pandemic are making bread. But I like, I told you all I liked to bake when I was younger. I now have all this time. And so I've been perfecting 
a few recipes. So I have Ooh. this artisan bread. Oh, nice. Great. This focaccia. Finally got Ooh. my focaccia down. I made strawberry shortcake after the third try. I'm like the biscuit. Perfect. So my bread game is is improving. Wait, so do, you, me. do you follow mm-hmm. Artisan Brian on Instagram? No, I do Sally's Baking Addiction. So oh, okay. I use most of her recipes. He just but... came out with his book and he's like this gorgeous man who makes bread. And I just love following him <laughs> and all his recipes. <laughs> I'm gonna have to look him up. Yeah, it's Brian with a Y, just in case you were wanting more bread resources. (laughs) His expertise is sourdough. I don't know how long I'll be here, and I haven't tried sourdough. You see me, I'm ticking off my my little bread thing. So, sourdough, I know everyone's on sourdough starter when I was yeast deficient. That's where I was gonna move to, but my sister in law sent me a bag of yeast, so I've been (laughs) (laughs) working with artisan instead. I love it. Elizabeth, you have been such an incredible guest. Can you? tell everyone where they can find you on the internet how they can support you um yeah we call this our desperation minute where we just ask people to do all the things so we want you to ask ask our audience what they can do for you all of the things all right audience here's my desperation minute this is what (laughs) i am requesting you can find me online on twitter and instagram and my website and it's all acevedo right the website is acevedorights.com this is my last name a-c-e-v-e-d-o-w-r-i-t-e-s and that's for instagram and twitter and the only thing that i will ask of folks is to demand justice for the folks who murdered brianna taylor um there's a couple different ways that you can do that you can give to the family fund which is trying to raise money to ensure that they can get all of the legal representation to actually go after the the police officers that murdered Breonna Taylor or you can give to the Louisville um, Defense Fund which is the fund behind folks who are protesting on the streets in Louisville, Kentucky and demanding that justice be brought for Breonna Taylor. So right now I am that is where my non-bookish energy is going and so I think, you know, this young woman who was asleep in her bed and shot eight times with a no-knock warrant over a suspect that they already had in custody um, just does not make sense. So I I hope folks will stand with me in demanding justice for her. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for bringing attention to that as part of your desperation minute. And um, thank you for joining us and being such a great guest and being so generous with your time. I appreciate you all. This was so fun. I'm glad we were able to do it. It was so fun. So fun. So fun.